And, uh, All right, let's open our Bibles now this morning. We're studying the life of David, the man after God's own heart. Our text this morning, 2 Samuel chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 17 through 25. 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 17 through 25. The topic we're going to find there is this, not once but twice David kills the Philistines who threaten Israel. The title of our message, Kill Phil's Volume 2. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for your word. We always come to it with real anticipation, Lord. Uh, This morning I'm just struck with the fact that you want to just speak to us through your word as if we were sitting down face to face with you. By your spirit, Lord, you can reveal things to us about your love and grace and mercy, about our position in you as we're going to look at a little bit here this morning and uh, Lord, fortifying that position and all. But Lord, when it's all over, I pray that we would just have a strong sense that we have been in your presence. And that you, Lord, would be glorified in everything that is said and done here in the sanctuary, over in the fellowship hall, with the children, Lord, who are learning at their own level this morning. And that it would be a reminder, Lord, that you are alive, that you're risen from the dead, that you're seated in heaven but poised to return. And that at any moment, Lord, you could come back for us, complete the work that you've begun in us, that we'll see you face to face, receive our reward, go on to get our inheritance, Lord, in the mansion that you're preparing for us. Oh, Lord, we love you. We've never seen you, Lord, but we love you. You fill our lives with the wonder of that love. I pray that, Lord, whenever we tend towards religion, we would be pulled back by grace that we would extend grace to one another and love each other, Lord. We pray these things this morning in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. In the world of sports, we look forward to matchups that pit a top offensive player against his counterpart on defense. Back in the day when Bo knew best, Bo Jackson was a rookie offensive phenom for the Oakland Raiders. His rookie counterpart was Brian the Boz Bosworth, He was linebacker for the Seattle Seahawks. He was the winner of the first two Butkus Awards as the nation's top college linebacker. He remains the only player to ever have won the honor more than once. The Raiders and the Seahawks squared off on Monday Night Football, November 30th, 1987. In the third quarter, on his way to scoring three touchdowns and running for 221 yards, Bo Jackson literally ran over Brian Bosworth. The big moment everybody was waiting for was over before it began. The play became one of the most memorable plays in Monday Night Football history. After that game, I guess you'd say the best defense is a good offense. Unless you're Tom Brady and the current New England Patriots. All season long, the Patriots' offense showed the ability to put at least 30 points up on the board against some of the best defenses in the NFL. I mean, they just crushed people. That all came to an end when the New York Jets held them to a relatively meager 21 points to advance in this year's playoffs. In that game, I guess you'd say the best offense was a good defense. So which is best, offense or defense? Well, moving from the world of sports to that of the military, I ran across something called active defense. By definition, active defense means the employment of limited offensive action and counterattacks to deny a contested area or position 
to your enemy. King David understood active defense. In our text, he first fortified his defensive position, which was the stronghold of Jerusalem he had recently conquered. But he didn't simply hole up there when attacked by the Philistines. He left his fortifications, not once but twice, and took the fight to them, defeating them both times. These things we read about in the Old Testament are written for our learning. Like David, we must employ active defense against spiritual enemies who would seek to defeat and destroy us. We must both fortify and fight. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, the active defense of your Christian life involves fortifying your defenses. And number two, the active defense of your Christian life involves fighting in offensives. We're going to look first at verse 9 to talk about fortification. Uh, So you can keep your place there. Israel had been divided and involved in civil war for around seven years. David had been ruling the tribe of Judah in the south. One of Saul's sons, Ishbosheth, had been the ruler of the northern tribes. During the civil war, it seems the Philistines, Israel's perpetual enemy, pulled up a chair and watched. Why fight your enemy when they are fighting amongst themselves? As believers in Jesus Christ, we ought not to fight amongst ourselves. In his New Testament book, James even called these quarrels wars. Infighting gives our enemies an easy victory. And so before we talk about anything else this morning, we need to be sure there are no civil wars raging in our lives. We need to deal with them. Now, David united Israel. He conquered Jerusalem, something that had eluded the Jews for centuries. He was starting to establish himself in treaties with other kings and rulers. His success stirred the Philistines to action. If you quit infighting and start reaching out, guess what will happen? You're going to face immediate, strong opposition from the enemy. Now, before we look at that opposition in verses 17 through 25, I do want to glean some insight from verse 9 about fortification. Verse 9 reads like this. Then David dwelt in the stronghold. He called it the city of David. And David built all around from the millow and inward. As we saw in our last study, Jerusalem was considered a stronghold. David had been able to identify its military weakness. There was a water shaft that could give an army access to the city. I have to believe that he fortified that weakness that had allowed him to conquer the city. Then we're told David built all around from the millow eastward. No one is certain what the millow is, but it seems to have had some military significance. Later in Israel's history, the millow appears in a list of repairs to military fortifications that were ordered by King Hezekiah. You can read about that in 2 Chronicles. So we have good evidence to conclude that David fortified his already fortified position. As a believer, you have what we might call a fortified position in Jesus Christ. Your enemies, we're told, have been defeated at the cross. Uh, sin and death and hell and the devil were all defeated once and for all at the cross of Jesus Christ. You've been adopted into the family of God. You're promised a heavenly mansion and both a reward when Jesus returns and an inheritance in heaven that is being kept for you uh, where thieves can't break in and steal and moth can't destroy and rust can't corrode. 
The Bible says you're secure in Ephesians chapter one, verses four and five. You read just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ. You're granted strength. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In Romans 8.37 you read, Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. The truth is we could go on and on listing the perks of your fortified spiritual position in Jesus Christ. At the same time, you're told repeatedly that you are involved in a spiritual warfare against serious, perilous, deadly enemies. Paul the Apostle describes sinister, supernatural entities. Then he strongly suggested you take up the whole spiritual armor of God to be able to withstand their onslaught. James, in his letter, suggested that you can be drawn away by the lust of your flesh back into sins that once held sway for you, but that have uh, you've been released from. And then there are all the writers of the New Testament warn you about the influence of the world around you as you seek to walk with Jesus Christ. You must, therefore, fortify your already fortified position. It's not a matter of maintaining your salvation. You are secure in Jesus Christ. It's a matter of working out your salvation, of daily sanctification as you seek to grow in Jesus Christ. Now, the techniques to fortify your life are not secret. Christian bookstores are filled with the latest books, all purporting to be the the latest and greatest way to fortify, we would say, your Christian life. Uh, And, uh, you know, I prefer books by dead authors. I don't know about you, uh, because they've stood the test of time. I mean, if you if you're dead uh, and and people are still buying your books, you're 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 doing all right. I think, you know, your family's getting the royalties, but you're doing all right, you know. But, uh, you know, you can go to the Christian bookstore and, and I'm not, you know, we have a bookstore, so I'm not down on bookstores. It's just that I would say a large percentage of the books, they're here today, gone tomorrow. They're the latest craze. Do these five things. Do these ten things. Here's some things to do. Uh, and really, you and I as Christians, really from the moment you're saved, you already know how to fortify your Christian life. Let's say you get saved at a Christian event like a concert or a movie or uh, maybe at a church service and there's a counselor available. They will invariably tell you that you should do four things. They give you uh, an idea of your security in Christ, that you're fortified in Christ. And they say, now, here's four things that you're going to want to do, that you're going to really be led to do, but that you're going to want to do in order to continue to grow. And they tell you that, number one, you want to pray, you want to talk to God. They explain to you that the way into the presence of God is now open to you because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. You're going to want to read the Word of God, the Bible, where you learn about God. And you're going to want to fellowship with other people. You think, what does that mean? It means you go to church. You find a good church and you go there and you meet other Christians who are on this same journey with you to encourage you and strengthen you. And then they tell you that you're going to want to tell other people that you know and your family and your friends and where you work that you've come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior. And so those are the simple things that you do. Then as you continue to read the Word and pray and go to church and do these things, you might find some other Christian disciplines, things like serving the Lord with the gifts that He has given you by His Holy Spirit, giving to the work of the Lord from your finances, fasting occasionally uh, so that you can grow and all this. And so th- it's very, very simple. 
And so sometimes people, they want to find new disciplines that, that, you know, because they don't like these old ones or they, they try to mystify these old ones, but it's all very, very simple. You have a fortified position in Jesus Christ. He died. He rose from the dead. He saved you for time and for eternity. And you're on the earth, which has not been totally redeemed. And you face enemies that want to destroy you. So fortify that position through these normal, everyday Christian disciplines. So the point that we want to make from verse 9 before we go on into verses 17 through 25, you are to always be busy fortifying your life. The attacks are coming and they will do a lot more damage to you and those you love if you've been lax in your preparation. The Old Testament hero Nehemiah provides a great illustration for us of this principle tasked with rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. We would say he was tasked with fortifying the city. He had his men hold a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other hand. They were both working to fortify their position and they were ready to fight at the same time. And so the question I would ask today is this, where is the weakness in your fortifications today, in my fortifications We could take inventory of our spiritual behaviors, of our Christian disciplines, if you prefer that term, and we should begin to fortify those things that maybe have been ignored or abandoned or need work. Because, you know, uh, you're going to be attacked. Many of you are being attacked right now. And you're just going to be better off if you're ready for it. We all know, folks, you're praying for people probably. Who you say, man, uh, these people are having such a hard time in their life and in their marriage. I wish they could come to church. I wish we could get them to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because you know that God would begin to strengthen them and fortify them and they'd be able to see God's way through that difficulty. Now, God is gracious. God is merciful. If people have slacked off in their Christian discipline and then they get hammered, They can come back to the Lord. He receives them back. He begins to minister to them. But it's a shaky kind of time in their life, these recommitments. It's better to be ready for these things. And then they don't shake you so much to the foundations. And so take an inventory of your fortifications today. And then in verses 17 through 25, the active defense of your Christian life will involve fighting offensives. David had taken the stronghold of Jerusalem. He had fortified it against enemy attack. You might think that his very best strategy when attacked by the Philistines would be to remain on defense, to hole up in the city and trust in its fortifications. Yet not once but twice God instructed him instead to leave his fortified position and go on the offensive against the Philistines. This tells us that we cannot just fortify We must take the fight to our enemies. Now, we do this every day. We just don't have the military mindset about it. We don't always think in military terms. Whether it's your home, that's a Christian home, uh, or your presence in your home as a Christian, or whether it's the church, we have these places of fortification. But we can't stay in them as much as we would like to. We go out into the world. We go to a place of work. We go to a school. We live in a neighborhood. We're surrounded by uh, enemies, as it were. Maybe not people directly our enemies, but the world and everything that is in it. And so this is what happens. We, we can't just remain on defense. Oh, some people try and do this, uh, especially when all this end times talk. 
There's always people who just want to go to one of the states that people want to go to where they can dig a hole in a rock and just live there because terrible things are coming. And that's, I guess that's one way to approach this situation. Just sell everything you have, go to you know, someplace in the middle of nowhere, dig a bomb shelter and live there. And, and just live out your life in a fortified place where no influence can touch your children, no influence can touch, and where you just become weird. <laughs> My personal commentary. But anyway, but see, most of us, we, we live here, and, and we, we're, we're in a church, and we're in a home, and then all of a sudden we have to go out and face the world. And it is a tough world that is against us and is against our children. And there's a lot of influences and a lot of problems. So this is the kind of thing we're talking about. Fortify your already fortified position, but then you realize you're going to have to go out and be a little bit on the offensive. David took the fight to the Philistines. Verse 17. Now, when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. And David heard of it and he went down to the stronghold. The Philistines also went and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. Now it says here, David went to his stronghold. The Philistines then lined up in the valley. It's starting to sound like the best offense is a good defense in which the city would withstand a siege by the Philistines. Now the trouble with siege warfare is that while you are relatively safe, it still costs you a great deal. First of all, Everything outside the walls of the city uh, is overcome and destroyed. And so in the typical situation where there's a walled city, outside is what we would call the suburbs, but it's, you know, agrarian, it's rural, it's farming, and the people are all living out there, and they're farming, and their animals, and their land. And then, the, you know, the enemy comes, okay, let's get everybody in the city, in the walls, they're safe, but their houses are burned down, uh, they put salt in the soil of their, their fields, they put rocks and boulders in their fields, they destroy everything outside the city. So you're safe, but once you leave, you have a lot of work to do. Then you eventually wind up on minimum rations, depending on how long the siege lasts, how, how tenacious that army outside the walls is. At some point, you're going to have to ration what's inside the city. And of course, though you're safe, you're relatively a prisoner because your movements are restricted. You can't leave the city. You're going to miss a couple of vacations. You know, I mean, it's, it's going to be rough. And so siege warfare isn't all that it's cracked up to be. It's, it's a difficult warfare. Sometimes it's better to have a fortified position, but to take the fight out to your enemy and meet him head on. So David, verse 19 inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? Now, I have to give David props for even asking this. God had just given him Jerusalem. He had fortified it. He went down to it. I might have thought, I'm safe. My people are safe. Let's just ride this thing out. But David had learned enough about the Lord to know that he should seek the Lord all the time for everything. And so he said, Lord, we're safe. We thank you for Jerusalem. We thank you that it's fortified. No one's going to take it very soon because we're walking with you and we fortified it. Everything's uh, firing on all cylinders. What do you want us to do? Verse 20, so uh, or it goes on and says, will you deliver them into my hand? Verse 19, and the Lord said to David, go up. For I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. So David went up 
to Baal-perazim. And David defeated them there. And he said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breakthrough of water. Therefore, he called the name of that place Baal-perazim. The Lord broke upon the Philistines like a tsunami breaking on the shore. David's army had no trouble defeating them and driving them back. This is active defense at its best. Verse 21, and they left their images there and David and his men carried them away. In ancient times, the armies would carry with them images of their gods in order to, uh, I guess, help them in the fight. Uh, We would call them idols, of course. In a parallel passage, you read that David had these idols burned. They didn't just carry them away. They burned them. First Chronicles 14, verse 12. This serves to remind us as we're going through this section that we should always follow through in our battles. We can't afford to let some idol linger around. We must get rid of it while we can or else it's going to return in greater strength to trouble us. Very common among Christians, especially if you've been a Christian for any length of time, uh, you know, if you maybe get radically saved at a point in your life and you turn away from a lot of things that held sway over you. Uh, you get rid of them, you burn them, you throw them away, you turn away from them. Then you're a Christian for some years, maybe even decades, and you think, well, now I'm, I'm kind of mature. And you return to some of those things. They're not sin for you anymore. And maybe they're not. Maybe they're not causing you to sin, but they could still be a huge distraction. Could still be something that takes your mind off the Lord, that weakens your defenses in other areas. And so David, he says, hey, we, we've got the idols of the Philistines. What do you want to do with them? We're going to burn them. We're going to completely destroy them, uh, symbolizing that we are not going to be overcome by them again. Now, one thing I'll say about the Philistines, they were persistent. If you're going to have a perennial enemy, they're, they're a good one because they just keep coming and coming. And so they come again against David. In verse 22, the Philistines went up once again and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. Now, David might have gone out without consulting the Lord. After all, hadn't he just defeated the Philistines in this same valley? I think if we're honest with ourselves, at least I know in my life, sometimes uh, if I see something happening the same way it just happened recently, I go out against it in the same way I did previously because I feel like I've learned something, that I've been strengthened in that way, and that I don't, I, I, I kind of seek the Lord in a way. I might talk to the Lord about it, but I've already decided that that's what I'm going to do. The Philistines, however, were no dummies. You can bet they had a new strategy for overcoming David. And so verse 23, therefore, David inquired of the Lord and he said, you shall not go up, circle around behind them and come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. And it shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, then you shall advance quickly for then the Lord will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. And David did so as the Lord commanded him, and he drove back the Philistines from Geba as far as Gezer. So now instead of a direct assault, this time David would attack from behind. Instead of a wave breaking forward onto the Philistines, David uh, David would see it as a mighty wind coming behind them and blowing them away. There's a great devotional study here, by the way. Water and wind always remind us of the power of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. David was a man led by the Holy Spirit. And we see here that his idea of being led by the Spirit was that you find God's will, follow it, and he goes before you as a wind or as a wave. 
and takes care of everything. He followed the Lord into these battles. Now, something else we want to note this morning is that active defense requires a spiritual quality that is implied but not stated in this second strategy, and that is what we would call humility. Here's what I mean. David is a tremendous military hero by this time. He's the guy who, as a very young man, had defeated Goliath, the Philistine giant that struck fear into Philistines and Israelites. A little later, after that, he went out and collected 200 Philistine foreskins as a dowry that Saul was demanding to earn his wife. Fast forward and we saw that he's the guy whose strategy had led to victory at Jerusalem over the Jebusites, a victory that had eluded them for centuries. And he had just broken upon the Philistines like a tsunami, driving them away and back. Now he's asked to come from behind and hide in the forest and mount a sneak attack to hide in the trees until God gave the sign of the rustling of the leaves I want to tell you that I think this is humbling for a military hero. I mean, you expect David to practically just walk out of Jerusalem himself and just go, ah, and, and you know, people were afraid of them. I mean, the Philistines, this is what they did. I mean, this is, if you're a Philistine, you went to war. Uh, you know, it just, hey, what's the, oh, it's, it's March, I can't be there tomorrow because we're going to war. Uh, you know, they just went out, they went again, they hated the Israelites, they marched up. But you've got to know, they've been beaten a lot by David. Goliath, and then throughout the years in between that, and then recently, and you know, it's a situation where David almost just has to come out to scare them. And while they're waiting for David to come out with whatever strategy they've come up with, he has snuck up behind them and he's hiding in a forest of mulberry trees. It's humbling. I realize that I think we sometimes miss the Lord's leading, not because we fail to seek it, but we fail to seek it with humility. I think Christians, sincere Christians like ourselves, we do seek the Lord. We come to the Lord in prayer. We say, Lord, what do you want us to do? But I think sometimes we don't have a humble enough heart. We, we might already think we know what to do or say because God has given us victory. We are mature. We've been around a little while. And we're not always ready for the Lord to tell us to do something that's a little bit humbling or that's out of the ordinary. We don't like to sneak around behind. We want to take things, uh, you know, head on. And so we seek the Lord, but I think we have to humble ourselves. And in my case, that means that in every situation, I have to say, Lord, you've taught me some things and I've done some things and I've had some successes and I've had some failures, but this I'm going to have to treat like a whole brand new situation that I don't know anything about. What is your strategy? You know, Lord, we just went out against the Philistines. You just broke upon them like a tsunami, but that's the past. What do you want to do today? Do you want me to go out against them again? Do you want me to have a frontal attack? Is there some other strategy? And, uh, you know, I, I think it's pretty easy for us to kind of bring the Lord along with us rather than follow the Lord's leading. And so humility is what we require in order to have this kind of active defense. We're creatures of habit. We like to figure things out, to have everything in order. But when we try to do that in our relationship with God, we tend to put him in a box we start living in the past on our traditions rather than really following his lead. We already have our own understanding of how God is going to lead us 
before we listen to his leading. I love Jesus in this area of listening to his father's leading because you just never were quite sure exactly what the Lord was going to do in a situation. I always think of the rich young ruler. I mean, Jesus is calling people to follow him and basically he's just saying all you need to do is believe and follow me and, you know, this kind of a thing. And then the rich young ruler comes to him and and he says, Lord, I want to follow you. What do I need to do? And Jesus goes through a list of things because the Lord is showing Jesus his heart. And he says to the kid, he goes, he goes, you need to sell everything you own before you can follow me. Where did that come from? Who would have come up with that? Aren't you glad that that you, hey, I raised my hand at the concert. I came forward. What did they say? They said I had to sell everything I own and give it to the church. And then I could follow Jesus. Well, that's, you know. And so you can't always know exactly what's going on in every situation. You can't have a a one-track mind on these things. Quite honestly, we don't like to humble ourselves, and we're not naturally drawn to strategies that speak of humility. Jesus, the master of humility, starting with his choice in eternity past to come into the world as a man. Philippians 2.7, Jesus made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And so God not only became a man, he became a man who was a bondservant. Not only he was a bondservant, he went to the cross and died a criminal's death. Think of the humility of Jesus' birth in a feeding trough, of his obscure life as a carpenter in Nazareth. In his relatively short three-and-a-half-year ministry, he was mocked and ridiculed. Those in power considered him, and they called him the illegitimate son of Joseph and Mary. He said of himself that he had nothing, not even a place to lie his head at night. His disciples never really understood him while... Uh, before the coming of the Holy Spirit, and one of them betrayed him while almost all the others scattered. His arrest and trials were humiliating to say the least, culminating in his shameful death as a criminal on the cross. But Philippians goes on to say, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth, of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And so we see that Jesus' humility won him a pretty big victory. He humbled himself to save you and I. Now, if you... If you even, if you and I even understood the problem of sin and, and, you know, and we looked at the human race and we thought, how are we gonna resolve this? No one would come up with a plan like this. This is an, this is a, a plan that speaks of the humility of our Lord and Savior. I know what we'll do. I'll become a man. I'll take the place of the human race on the cross. I'll die in their place. I'll take their sin and give them my righteousness. And I won't just appear one day and do that. I won't just show up on the scene and say, here I am. I'm here to to be the final sacrifice for sin. No, I'll be born as a baby in a feeding trough. And I'll live the most obscure life in a place worse than Riverdale. <laughs> Nazareth. And I'll work with my hands and, and, and scholars will, you know, will debate why there are all these silent years. And what, you know, what was Jesus doing for 30 years? Because we really don't know anything about that except one episode when he was around 12. 
And then I'll have a three and a half year ministry where most of the people who are following me just want what I can give them, whether it's food or healing or something like that. My own disciples will never really understand me. They'll scatter and they'll be, uh, you know, one of them will deny me and turn me over to my enemies who call me the illegitimate son of my mother and, and stepfather. And then I'll, I'll be quiet during these trials where they mock me and beat me and scourge me and practically kill me. And then I'll die on the cross, a shameful death, as people jeer. No one would come up with an idea like that. That's humility. That's God's plan. And so when God comes to us and he says, I want you to have an active defense. Fortify you. You have an incredibly fortified position. You're secure in Christ. Whatever blessing you can think of in the Christian life, it's part of that fortification. In Ephesians, it says we have every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. The Lord says, no, I'm leaving you on the earth, though, for a while. Between the time you get saved and I come for you, either personally or corporately, you're going to face some enemies. The devil, he's defeated, but you still, he's still on the war path. You still have your flesh to contend with. The world is an evil place. It's not totally redeemed yet. So you're going to have to fortify your position along the way. And sometimes you're going to have to leave that fortification, most of the time actually, and be out in that world, in that environment. And he goes, and when you need to have an active defense, what's called for is humility. And when you don't know what that means, you can always take a look at me and see how I handle things. And, you know, when we look at the life of Jesus, we think, wow. Oh, Lord, wow. But we quickly forget the humility, the humiliation of that kind of a life. And so, active defense, discovered by humility. Humble yourself, seek the Lord for His strategies. You and I are facing Philistines in, your person, in our personal lives, at home, in our family, at work, at school, maybe even in the church. But in every one of those situations, the Lord can be a wave or a wind that we follow to victory. Let's pray.